Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Sometimes an idea takes off in a way that's kind of shocking. And a little more than 200 years ago, an influential doctor had an idea that shapes our world to this day. The doctor's idea was that the people living in a mountainous area sandwiched between Russia and Turkey and Armenia and Iran were, if he was being honest about it, pretty much the most ideal people around. The mountains in this particular region were called the Caucasus, and these ideal people, he said, could be called Caucasians. And what's interesting is that the man who invented it, by looking at different skulls and then deciding that uh, the people of the Caucasus had the most beautiful skulls, and the Caucasus is quite a small region, but he extended that to saying that Caucasian would be everyone from Western Europe to northern India. Angela Saini is a science journalist, and the doctor she's talking about was a German man named Johann Friedrich Blumenbach. It was never scientific. You know, it really has no meaning whatsoever in the way that we use it now. Saini says that Blumenbach wasn't alone in categorizing people during the 1700s for a couple of reasons. First, the rise of science spurred the rise of categories of all sorts and a compulsion to understand how the world worked. At the same time, the rise of European empires made it feel, to many European scientists anyway, like their own sense of superiority could, perhaps, be understood through race. Which, Sini says, explains why Blumenbach defined Caucasian so broadly, a term which, after all, was once pretty much tied just to the region around the Caucasus Mountains. Well, he meant to include himself. And how could he do that knowing that he wasn't from that region? He could only do that by stretching it as broadly as possible. And ideas about human difference and and how far these similarities spread, of course, came under these blankets. And they also depended on the politics of the time. So our ideas of race and who is superior and who is inferior and who belongs under one banner and who doesn't really are shifting quantities depending on the time and the place that we live in. Saini is the author of Superior, The Return of Race Science. In the book, which I talked to her about in 2019, she looks deeply at a topic that's got a lot of relevance right now, and it's become part of politics and public discussions. She argues that the invention of race, the concept as we understand it today, well, that really happened in the 1700s. Of course, people have always encountered those who look different. So think about the Crusades or when Marco Polo went to China or even when the Egyptians or Greeks or Romans expanded their territory. We can't know for sure, for example, how the ancients thought about human difference, how they catalogued people, if they even did, if they thought about human difference as a shifting quantity or a kind of hard and fast quantity as we do now. Some people, Saini said, believe that skin color could change dramatically as you moved. It would darken if you moved to a warmer place and lighten if you moved to a colder place. And then the Enlightenment rolled around. This is a time of empiricism. This is about cataloguing the world, understanding how the world works, and then forming typologies and trying to order nature. So what you see, for example, in Carl Linnaeus, who was one of these early researchers or thinkers who did this, he cataloged the natural world, animals, plants. And so it was almost a natural consequence of this, that he would also look at humans, that he would look at us and think, well, how can humans then be categorized? Can we also be placed in these kind of boxes? Some scientists thought there were just a few races. Some thought there were dozens and dozens. 
And the fact that we still use the word Caucasian to refer to people who hail from places as far-flung as Iran, Scotland, and St. Louis, it underscores the notion that an idea invented more than 200 years ago has had real staying power. Though, Saini notes, how we think about race, that is ever-shifting. In the 19th century, for instance, one of the earliest sets of legislation to ban immigration on the basis of race in the U.S. was against Chinese immigration. There was this idea that Chinese immigrants would be somehow not as good as Western European immigrants, that they just wouldn't contribute as much, that it wasn't worth having them. And today, Chinese immigrants or Asian immigrants are held up as kind of model American citizens. These are people who now people who kind of cling still to these racial hierarchies, they claim that Asians and that people in that part of the world have the highest IQ of anyone in the world. And these racial stereotypes change to match up to how society is doing at the time. In fact, when the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed in the late 1800s and for years afterwards, the U.S. didn't even keep track of people coming over the southern border from Mexico. There was no border patrol. Those were not the people the government was concerned about. But in the early years of the 20th century, there were immigrants who worried American leaders. Those immigrants were Jews, Italians, and people from Slavic countries, whose arrival deeply troubled President Teddy Roosevelt. Here's Catherine Benton Cohen, a scholar on immigration at Georgetown University, who I talked to in 2018. He was very concerned about this thing that folks call race suicide, right? That white Anglo-Saxon Protestant women's birth rate had been falling since 1790, basically, whereas new immigrants from Southern and Eastern Europe had high birth rates. Of course, a lot of people from those groups, Italians, Jews, Slavs, they now view themselves as as American and mainstream as anybody else. Which, Angela Saini says, makes you realize that an idea is open to continual reinvention. And I think this speaks to how race as an idea is used and abused by those with power. It always has been. You know, it's used to protect certain groups of people and used to beat other people over the head with. And it's still used in that way. So you can see in the modern day rhetoric around, for example, Hispanic immigrants in the US, this kind of language, this tone that these are somehow undesirable citizens. These are the kind of people we don't want. When, of course, when you look at the kind of heritage or makeup ancestral makeup of people in South America, they have a very broad ancestry, including white European. So these ideas about Mm -hmm. who gets to belong and who doesn't are very heavily politically loaded. And they're always, they always have been to do with power and economics and politics. Race really is just a pawn in this game. It's a tool. It feels scientific. It's a way to make what are essentially political arguments sound like intellectual arguments. I want to ask you about somebody who is really important and interesting in this this idea about race. Um, In the middle of the 1800s, late 1800s, Charles Darwin comes along and says something that at the time was really, you know, stirred people up, which was this idea that humans um, are descended from other animals, you know, like, you know, for people who really believed the idea of the story of Adam and Eve um, and the Garden of Eden, this was just throwing that on its head. And I wonder what that did 
what his work did to these ideas that, as you were saying, like in the 1700s had uh, been developed about race. Well, in some ways, um, what Darwin did was help universalize humanity. So by stressing that we all had one common ancestor, that kind of helped reinforce the, the idea that had existed since in the, the Enlightenment, that we were one human species, mm. that we couldn't be separated in that way. And the fact that we can, for example, breed with each other <laughs> successfully, um, and that we have far more in common. And this is one thing Darwin wrote about in our responses, in our emotions, in kind of these physical features that we have, we have far more in common than we do apart. So we are united in that sense. Darwin was an abolitionist, and he belonged to a family of great abolitionists. He very, very firmly believed, having travelled and seen the horrors of slavery, that slavery was a bad thing. Hmm. And yet, he also couldn't relinquish the idea that there might be some kind of racial hierarchy within the human species, that perhaps some people were better than others or more advanced or more evolved than others. And that kind of speaks to how ingrained these social and cultural ideas were at the time, mm -hmm. that even someone as careful as Darwin couldn't help but fall prey to these kind of racial hierarchy ideas. So did Darwin, I mean, the idea that everybody comes from the same, like, original group in Africa, that's pretty game-changing and profound. Um, did he help explode at all some of the race ideas that had come about, you know, in the previous hundred years or so? Well, the out-of-Africa hypothesis actually has only really been proven in recent decades, so not in Darwin's time. Uh, I think in many ways, on balance, Darwin did a great deal to unite the human species, to make us understand that we are really one human species. You know, genetically, we are more than 99% identical. In fact, there is. we are more similar than chimpanzees are to each other genetically. Mm -hmm. We are remarkably homogeneous as a species. That's not to say there isn't difference between us. And it is this kind of difference that we see, this phenotypic difference in, for example, skin colour or hair texture or facial features that we pick up on because it's so obvious, it's on the surface. And this is really what has carried the science of human difference through into the 20th and 21st centuries is trying to understand that there is, of course, human variation. We are Every person is different from the next. How does this play out? Is it individual or is it in groups? And if it is in groups, and how do these groups work and how can we define them? The thing is, it is very difficult to define them. And the reason for that is similarity and difference works from individual to individual. The vast majority of the differences between people are down to individual differences, you know, more than 95%. Mm. This is what makes me different from you. Right. Group difference accounts for a tiny, tiny percentage of what makes us different, and it's statistical. So there is, for example, no black gene, no white gene. There is no gene that exists in all the members of one group and not in another. So it's always an average, and it's very, very fuzzy. The only point at which race really starts to make any kind of genetic sense is at the level of the immediate family. Now, historically, we have tended to live near kin, 
as human beings. Not always. For my example, my parents are immigrants, so we don't live near our extended family. But, you know, people have uh, tend to live near their families. And this is why communities may have some kind of loose statistical genetic similarities. But that similarity gets weaker and weaker and weaker the bigger the group of people gets. And it feels tight at the level of the family. At the level of the country or the continent, it is so fuzzy as to become almost meaningless. So to that point, um, I want to play you a little clip about that idea of human genetic diversity. Um, I did an interview in 2017 with um, the geneticist and author um, Adam Rutherford. And this is him talking about genetic diversity within Africa. So the, the example I give is like if you take two African people, say one from Uganda and one from Ethiopia, okay. they are more likely to be more different to each other than either one of them is to a European or an Indian or a Chinese man. And so th there is more variation within Africa than there is in the rest of the world put together. Angela Saini, do you think people have trouble wrapping their heads around that because in some ways we're so distracted by like the visual and so much of who we are as people it has nothing to do with the th what you can see. Yes, and we essentialize about groups that we are not familiar with. So one mm -hmm. thing I often see in the UK, for instance, is people saying Kenyans make great runners because look at all the marathon winners that are Kenyan. And the reason many people say that is because they may be the only Kenyans they have ever seen right. are marathon runners on television. So it's very easy to essentialize. When you live in a society, you see the great diversity around you. Nobody in this country has ever said to me, look at how well white British athletes do in the world. There must be something really remarkable about being white and British that make them do really well. And the reason for that is when you're a white Briton living in Britain, you see that there are some people who <laughs> right. are very fast and some yeah. people who are very fat and slow. And there are others who are smart and there are those who are dumb, just like there is in every single society. Right. But we essentialize about the people we don't know. The people we don't encounter are the ones that we form these generalizations about. And this is one of the deepest problems when it comes to race, is that we fall into these lazy stereotypes based on these lazy generalizations because we don't know people. Right. If we just knew that every country in the world has a distribution of talents and skills and shapes and sizes, just like, just like the country you live in, then you wouldn't be so quick to kind of make these overarching generalizations about people. Okay, let's take a quick break here. You're listening to a conversation I had with science journalist Angela Saini last year about how our ideas around race were formed. When we come back, a look at politics and race. If you want to know more about any of the history that we've discussed, from theories of race during the Enlightenment to how Charles Darwin shook things up, we've got resources for you at our website, innovationhub.org. Also there is my full interview with Catherine Benton Cohen about how our immigration system was almost entirely invented just about a hundred years ago, largely over concerns about migrants from Southern and Eastern Europe. From PRX and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Some people have secrets they want to keep. Like one fairly famous British man from the southwest of England. This particular man had damage to his head and looked like he might have been in some sort of nasty fight. If he had a name, no one knew it. But they did know what to call him. So Cheddar Man is a skeleton that was discovered in Cheddar Gorge, um, which are these caves in England, about 100 years ago, in the early 20th century. That's science journalist Angela Saini. And yes, in the absence of a name for this fellow, he was called Cheddar Man. He lived about 10,000 years ago, and he was dubbed by many the first Brit. This is what people look like in Western Europe and Britain 10,000 years ago, not what we would have expected. And despite the secrets Cheddar Man was keeping, a cutting-edge 2018 analysis of his DNA revealed some pretty personal stuff about him. For example, he couldn't digest milk uh, because that came in with the advent of farming after the time of Cheddar Man. So we're getting his whole biology, how he relates to people in Europe at the time, and how he relates to people in Britain now. Chris Stringer, who you just heard talking to the BBC, had spent something like 40 years studying Cheddar Man before the 2018 DNA analysis. And he knew that, lactose intolerance aside, one of the most exciting things for the public to understand is what Cheddar Man, who, after all, was thought of as the first Brit, looked like. He had very, very dark skin. You know, by modern standards, he would be considered black, blue eyes and dark skin. And this was this is kind of it wasn't a shock to scientists because many um, similar skeletons found throughout Western Europe show the same kind of features: dark skin, blue eyes. And um, so this was common amongst hunter gatherers in Western Europe around ten thousand years ago. Chris Stringer, the scientist who studied Cheddar Man, did indeed fit the skeleton into a category that feels a little unusual to us now, but that once was ordinary. Angela Saini, the science journalist, is the author, most recently, of Superior, The Return of Race Science. And she says the analysis of Cheddar Man's DNA should help shake up any notion we have that there are biological roots to race. Instead, she argues, humans are now, and always have been, in a state of flux. What does it say about our ideas of ethnicity, indigeneity, to know that the first Britons would not have looked like modern-day white Britons, to know that in the past we didn't look the way that we do now. Nobody looked the way that we do now. And also that there was always migration and churn and that populations were always migrating all over the world and moving back and forth. And um, as one geneticist described it to me, David Reich, like a trellis. This is how we should think about human movement throughout history, not that we stretched out across the world and then stayed where we are and then adapted to local conditions, but that we were always moving. And there is this great trellis that describes human difference. But what was fascinating to me as a kind of woman of Indian heritage, so a brown-skinned British person, and I consider myself fully British. I am British. I was born here. I've lived my whole life here. My son lives here, and he can also considers himself British, that we have brown skin. Should my brownness stop me from feeling fully British? There are people, there are elements within this country who feel that to be truly British is to be white. Mm. And what I would say is, well... The Cheddar Man wasn't wasn't white. So is he not British? Because he was here a lot longer before you were. Hmm. I I wonder what you think of our 
uh, conceptions of race and how they're being reinvented in a time. We were talking about genetics and like at a time when people are so interested in looking at their ancestry and sending in a thing to 23andMe and finding out, oh, whoa, this thing I thought I was, maybe I am, but I'm also, you know, a little bit of this other country and a little bit of this other place and a little bit of this other place. Um, I I just wonder how you think that's kind of changing the game. Um, You know, when you think back to like we we were talking about with the 1700s where people are like, there are these really very pure categories, right? Like Caucasian and whatever, you know, I think uh, Mongol, you know, these very, very pure categories. And now you kind of see that some of that lack of purity, right? Um, there was never any purity right. going back throughout history. But like now, now genetics kind of reveal it. <laughs> yeah, it does in some ways, but in kind of troubling ways, because even these DNA ancestry tests rely on modern day categories in order to make these generalizations. So when a test comes back and it will say you're, for example, 80% South Asian, 10% something else, you know, or Nordic, they are using categories that have only been invented in the last few hundred Mm. years. The idea of the nation state is fairly recent. You know, these ideas did not exist 10,000 years ago. And and more importantly, we didn't look as we did 10,000 years ago. There is no kind of cultural or physical resemblance to people then and people now. So this idea that somehow there were pure groups of people that look the same and that somehow over time this has been muddied, it was being muddied from the beginning. We were always muddy as a species because this is the nature of us. You know, human beings have always moved around. They've always interbred. In fact, we didn't just interbreed amongst each other. We also interbred with other now extinct humans like Neanderthals and Denisovans. So we were always mixing. And this is the story of who we are, every single one of us. We are all a mixture of traits. Uh, So, for example, the variants for white skin, the genetic variants for paler skin, you see them not just in Europe and in East Asia. You also see them in sub-Saharan Africans. Hmm. You know, you see these genetic variants scattered throughout populations all over the world because we are and always have been a mix. And to think that if we go far back enough in time that we can somehow isolate who we really are, you know, get back to some kind of pure origin is just a fallacy. Hmm. Um, how do you talk to people about the fact that um, in some ways, as you're saying, like a lot of these categories are much more fluid than we'd want if there are any categories at all? Um, because you also have uh, people working like in medicine who talk about, you know, it's really important to understand that different illnesses may manifest differently in different groups of people, that maybe different drugs don't work in exactly the same way. Um, like a, a, an example uh, of an illness might be like Tay-Sachs disease, which is mm-hmm. particularly common in Ashkenazi Jews. It's a well-known mm-hmm. example. Mm-hmm. So if, if those kinds of differences exist, then how do you say like, oh, but differences in intelligence or strength or whatever don't exist? Well, we have to remember that those kind of differences like Tay-Sachs are isolated and rare. And the reason they exist in the ways that they do is because in the same way that some genetic diseases run through families, if you have a very tight community of people who have stayed very tight-knit over generations, then you will also get those kind of diseases spread throughout that community in the same way as you would in a family. 
That makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that community is now a separate race, different from everybody else. It just means that certain genetic traits have passed and filtered within that community. That's all that means. So if if the idea of race and racial hierarchy was invented at a certain point in time and built on, um, where do you think we are now in terms of like the impact of that invention, how much it's it lives on how much it's dissipated. Like, where do you place us? I read a lot of books on the genetics of race when I was writing Superior. And one thing they often do is kind of rubbish the idea of race outright and say, you know, we should just stop thinking about people as races. We shouldn't see this. We shouldn't use these categories anymore. We shouldn't think about people in this way. And I think it's right that we shouldn't think biologically about people in this way. But race was made real through overuse. It was made real by politics. It was made real by slavery and genocide and colonialism and all the horrible, horrific things that were done in the name of these superior and inferior categories, these ideas that some people are better than others. And we live with the consequences of that now. So until we have, as societies, reconciled ourselves with the legacies of these ideas, with the damage that they have done and that they continue to do to us, then we can't stop using these categories socially and politically in order to assert our rights and to address those historic wrongs. So when you think about how this all uh, moves forward, this this theory that's been sort of around for at least a few hundred years now, 300 years. Um, Where do you think um, these ideas about race are headed? Um, I am less hopeful now than I used to be because of the direction the societies seem to be heading in. You see the rise of this kind of strongman politics throughout Europe, in the US, in parts of Asia, a kind of again, biologizing of difference that we haven't really seen since the 1920s, 1930s, and to some extent perhaps a little bit post-war. But I really worry about society at the moment. I worry not just at a kind of societal level, philosophical level, but also personally. I am a non-white woman living in a country in which there is also a resurgence of the far right, And I worry for my child because I really didn't think that he would have to see this. I thought he would be living in a more enlightened age, that we wouldn't have these problems. When he was born, Obama was in the White House. Mm. And I thought that would be the world that he would live in. You know, Mm. a hopeful, positive, pluralist world in which um, we had moved on from these debates. And now it feels as though we're again fighting over the same old things, we're having the same old debates that should have been put to bed a really long time ago and we're back here again. I really hope that we come out of this better, that society somehow forges a more enlightened path out of this and recognises history and educates itself about the history and doesn't repeat the same mistakes. Angela Saini is the author of Superior, The Return of Race, Science. Angela, thank you very much. Thank you. I talked to Angela Saini in 2019.